0: It's Tuesday, December 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We got some results from the NASA twin study, and it's teaching us about long-term space travel. The study focused on identical twin astronauts Scott and Mark Kelly. Scott spent 340 days in space, while Mark remained on Earth. Comparing their results, NASA found that there were changes to Scott's DNA, genes, body bacteria, and more. Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science, joins us for what happens to your body when you live in space for a year. Next, Washington has become the first state in the country to legalize human composting. Before, the only acceptable means of disposition of a human body were burial or cremation. Now, we have natural organic reduction. The process involves wood chips and takes about four weeks and yields about two wheelbarrows worth of soil. Brendan Kiley, reporter at The Seattle Times, joins us for the new alternative to burial or cremation. Finally, we speak to Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic, about the sperm donor who has met 17 of his kids. Tim Gullickson began donating sperm in 1989, and now most of his kids are between 18 and 25 years old. They found him and other siblings through the donor sibling registry and DNA test sites like 23andMe. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: The only big surprise was how long uh, a year is. It seemed like I'd lived there forever. Uh, it seemed longer than I thought it would be. Going to Mars, if it takes, you know, two years or two and a half years, um, yeah, that's that's doable. The, certainly, you know, the first people that go there, that's going to be a big uh Big motivator being first. Joining us now
0: is Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science. We're going to be talking about something I had been interested for a long time and kind of waiting for, the NASA twin study. This is Scott Kelly and Mark Kelly, two identical twins who are also astronauts. It's really one of those rare occasions. (laughs) But NASA wanted to study the long-term effects on the body of being in space. Scott Kelly was in space for about 340 days while his brother remained here on Earth. And then when he came back, they did a compare and contrast of all sorts of different things that they can do. Tell us a little bit about the study and then what some of the findings were.
2: So one of the more interesting ones that they found, so they in on looking at the two brothers' telomeres. And telomeres are basically these molecules that sit at the end of our DNA segments. And their main goal is sort of to protect DNA from damage or degradation. And over time, the aging process, of course, does this. And so we see, as we age, we see our telomeres decrease. But we also know that other factors like stress and environmental factors will sort of speed up this aging process. So originally the researchers predicted that because space is this sort of stressful environment, they thought that Scott Kelly, who spent that year in space, his telomeres would deteriorate or damage more than his brother Mark. And what they found actually was the opposite, that Scott perhaps might have lengthened. And what they actually saw was this increase in activity of proteins that regulate telomere length. So that means that the body is telling itself to make our telomeres longer. And they're not entirely sure why that is. One theory that they think is, is they know that a healthy diet and a healthy exercise regimen will increase telomere production. And they know that Scott Kelly, while he was on the ISS, followed this strict diet and health exercise protocol. <laughs> but then at the same time, I think that just being in space itself, as this like drastic shift in environmental changes, kind of triggered the body to produce new cells, and those new cells would have longer telomeres, which would account for that increase in
0: protein count. On that front, what's the effect of that on the body, though? The lengthening of the telomeres does does that mean you in- age a little slower, or the body? We just know that the body can withstand longer periods in space. What's the effect of on the body from that?
2: It's basically preventing the aging process. It's, it's Like you said, aging slower. And so researchers thought originally that your body would age quicker in space because it's this sort of stressful environment and what they found was that maybe this isn't true that maybe our bodies can withstand space for longer periods of time than we thought.
0: He had some uh, changes to his genes. Uh, A lot of this they think it was because exposure to radiation were not under the safety of the uh, the umbrella of the earth. Right. (laughs) Some of the radiation caused changes to his genes as well.
2: This is another one that they're not sure about that they have to sort of study longer but what they saw was different Changes in our DNA and gene changes are basically permanent alterations in our DNA. And so the ones that they saw, they were extremely more prominent in Scott Kelly versus his brother Mark. And what they think is that increased radiation exposure because space has so much more radiation than Earth that that accounts for these changes. So what does that mean? They have to sort of follow those changes over time and see if they account for anything. So we know that changes like that can over time cause cancer or can over time cause other forms of disease. So understanding which ones we're looking for now by comparing which ones were changed in Scott versus which ones were changed in Mark, we can sort of follow those changes and see if they do lead to any diseases that could be accounted for from his time in space.
0: The last big change that they noticed had to do with the bacteria in scott's body this influences a lot of stuff our digestion our metabolism mm-hmm. a role in our immune and bone and muscle systems so this one is a pretty important one what happened there
2: people often overlook the microbiome or what scientists have for a long time but recently there's just been this like surge in research and understanding of the effects that the microbiome which is our gut bacteria as well as the bacteria that live on our skin affect our health and so what they found was was that there was a dramatic shift from when he went to space and then from when he when Scott was on earth and went to space and also a change compared to his brother Mark who stayed on Earth. But what they found was that those changes came right back to normal when he returned to Earth so he, he didn't experience any dramatic, Loss of bacterial diversity, which researchers think is crucial to a healthy microbiome during that process. And so that is kind of a positive affirmation that maybe the body can withstand, especially the microbiome at least, can withstand these long term space travel and can find its way back to normal when it reaches a a more normal environment.
0: Claire Maldarelli, (laughs) Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
3: But the truth is that nature is really, really good at death. We've all seen it. When organic material dies in nature, microbes and bacteria break it down into nutrient-rich soil, completing the life cycle. In nature, death creates
0: life. Joining us now is Brendan Kiley, reporter at the Seattle Times. Earlier this week, Governor Jay Inslee signed a new bill making Washington the first state in the U.S. to legalize human composting. It's called natural organic reduction or alkaline hydrolysis, sometimes called liquid cremation. And this is now a new acceptable means of disposing of the human body. Up until now, you can only do a burial or cremation. So tell us a little bit about the bill and what it does.
1: The first point is that alkaline hydrolysis and natural organic reduction are two separate processes. Alkaline hydrolysis, they've been trying to legalize that for the past few years in Washington state, and it's legal in some other states as well. But this year it got tacked on, or what got added was natural organic reduction or colloquially known as human composting. And so this process, I think the easiest way think about it is like a urban crematorium except using the slower composting decomposition process instead of the faster flame process. We do have green cemeteries in Washington state where people can be buried without embalming, without expensive caskets and so on. But this being one site where bodies would go in and the human remains would come out is totally new, the idea in the United States.
0: Yeah, I've just seen wood chips, straw, and other materials. So what do they do to naturally decompose the body that way?
1: The process dates back a little bit, a few years back, to something called livestock mortality composting, which is something farmers and ranchers began to experiment with, and researchers as well, and found as an efficient and environmentally friendly means of decomposition of large animals, and found that one could, with the proper mix of uh, starter elements, the right aeration, managing it for the right temperature could reduce 1,500-pound steer into totally clean, usable, nutritionally rich soil in about a few months. They ran some tests, a research program at Washington State University with human remains, people who were terminally ill and supported the project and wanted to donate their remains to the research and found that uh, using a similar process, human bodies could become that kind of clean, rich soil in about four weeks. Wow! Um, So the process of, yeah, it is pretty quick and that's bones and all. It requires, again, the right starter elements, uh, the right aeration to keep the microbes happy. And it's relatively speaking uh, less odorous than people would think. If the microbes are really happy and working really efficiently, they do their work quickly and they don't produce a lot of that off gas odor that we associate with something rotting.
0: Because that was one of my questions. What about the bones? Obviously they're, they're tough to break down. So I didn't know that even in that short of time, you know, four weeks, it's pretty quick. The bones yeah, go with it too. Quick.
1: Yeah, and again, it's a little different than just a green burial where you dig a hole and you lay someone in and just a, a cloth shroud or or something you know that process of decomposition takes longer because the conditions are different but if you have the right temperature the right moisture the right starter elements the process moves pretty fast
0: the traditional ways environmentally are not necessarily the best. Was this bill introduced specifically to address some of those issues?
1: It was, and that was one of the the founder, Katrina Spade's, main visions. I mean, she grew up in a farm in New Hampshire. Her father's hired physician. Her mother was a physician's assistant, an environmental activist. So, familiarity with life, death, composting, new growth of plants and animals, and that was all part of her childhood coming up. And when she was studying architecture, she was thinking about death modalities, what we use to deal with human remains and wondered if something more farm-like might be good, both environmentally and to people's taste, if people don't want to spend a lot of money on varnished caskets and lined with expensive cloths and the embalming process and all that kind of thing. So this is Katrina's vision, and, and the state senators and the governor agreed, was a simpler, less expensive, less complicated, more natural, more environmentally friendly option for people's remains after they pass away.
0: Katrina Spage, so she's the developer of the Urban Death Project. Is she the one behind this recomposed company who's going to be building kind of these new burial plots for this?
1: That's right. Katrina Spade started a nonprofit called the Urban Death Project, I think, around 2014, and began the process of talking to scientists and attorneys and uh, death care experts from around the country, a lot lot on the West Coast, and formed a board, and they moved into a, a for-profit model, a small business model to have Recompose. And now that the legislation is passed and the governor has signed it, the next step is for them to develop the rules necessary with the Department of Licensing, all that kind of stuff, and find a site and start building.
0: You know, when people get cremated, oftentimes they spread the ashes, maybe mm-hmm. in their loved one's favorite place. Loved ones are allowed to keep this soil that is made. You know, a body would create about two wheelbarrows full of soil and you can take it to a home garden wherever you want to put it. You would plant a tree, plant vegetables. So that's kind of a cool notion to breathe life out of somebody's passing as well.
1: Oh, that's absolutely the case. And, and part of the attraction behind it, I mean, I to one older gentleman who's a big supporter of this from Eastern Washington. has been a career nurse all his life, working in intensive cardiac care units. His vision is to have a memorial tree, you know, something that you could hang a swing on and maybe grandkids or great grandkids down the line could swing on and have his body become nourishment for that tree itself It would be a living testament to him as opposed to to a headstone in a cemetery.
0: Now the next step is I guess to see if other states will propose similar bills and, and see how this takes off across the country.
1: I mean, it sounds like there's some interest bubbling up, maybe a little bit in Massachusetts, a little bit in Michigan. Um, Joshua Slocum of the Funeral Consumers Alliance out in New England certainly knows about this and is following this. People are quite interested in this is a relatively simple, viable alternative to what we've done in the past.
0: Brendan Kiley, reporter at The Seattle Times, thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you.
3: they want to do was create a website where people could connect not only with their donor, but also with, as it's saying in the name, their siblings. So what you kind of start to see is people who maybe haven't even found their donor, but have really relationships with, have siblings, like kind of all over the country.
0: Joining us now is Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. We're going to be talking about an unconventional family. This uh, concerns a man named Tim Gullickson, who began donating to a sperm bank in 1989. And he never really expected to meet any of the biological children that he might have had there. But right now, he's met 17 of his kids so far... And there might be more on the horizon that he just hasn't made connections with yet. Tell us about Tim Gullickson and his family.
3: Back in the 1980s, it was just really normal to have an anonymous donor. So, like, if you donated, you would never find your kids, or like, if you were a donor conceived kid, you weren't even told that you were donor conceived. And this really started to change when donor sperm became available to single women and to uh, lesbian couples. So, obviously, now you can't keep a secret from the kids. So, now you have a lot more kids, there's a lot more openness around donor conception. And you so, you have these things that spring up, first it's a a website called the Donor Sibling Registry. It's a website created by Wendy Kramer, who is a single woman who had a child through sperm donation. What she really wanted to do was create a website where people could connect not only with their donor, but also with, as it's saying, in the name, their siblings. So what you kind of start to see is people who maybe haven't even found their donor, but have really relationships with, have siblings, like kind of all over the country. In the case of Tim, he was, and I will say he is a little bit unusual, he was actually really interested in meeting his kids as kids. So he signed up when he first heard about this website back in, I think, 2004. At the time, there were a few other mothers on the site who had also heard about the website. I think they'd like, seen him on Dr. Phil or something. They were interested, but they were like hesitant about bringing a stranger into their family, right, as like, you might understand.
0: Yeah, most people would be, exactly.
3: But there was this one mother and one son in particular who was nine years old. His name was McKay, and he I was always really, really interested in knowing his father. He actually kept a daddy box going back for several years. So he was nine years old, and like when he was at school and he would have Father's Day and like, make Father's Day cards. He was like, well, I have no one to give it to. And he started keeping this daddy box. And so when he was nine years old, his mother got on the site and she messaged him and she actually told him, your son wants to meet you. I don't want to portray this as like typical because I think if you talk to people who are donor conceived, they have a lot of different ways of thinking about whether they're donors or father or not. But for McKay, he really thought of Tim as his father and really wanted to meet him. So Tim flew down to Texas. He lives in San Francisco. And they met for the first time and kind of hit it off. And he <laughs> all these photos with them. And once he started posting Photos of himself with one kid, and all the other mothers on the site started being like, Oh, you know, like maybe we should have our kids meet too. So it ended up that they started this annual trip where he would take them to Bass Lake every summer. Now they're up to 17 kids that he's met, and they're about to have their annual trip in July.
0: Everybody gets something different out of this. McKay did want a father, he wanted to meet his dad. For a lot of the other kids, though. That wasn't really the main point of it. They wanted to find their siblings. They wanted to find those other family members. And that's why I said, you know, this is a big unconventional family. Obviously, each kid had their own family, their other parents. But they kind of formed this other unit, other family unit, basically, out of this. But uh, talk a little bit about that, because a lot of these other kids were looking for their siblings, specifically.
3: Yeah, exactly. I talked to one girl named Amelia, and she was actually one of the first kids that Tim met as well, after McKay. Amelia told me that when she was a kid, she really desperately wanted siblings, and she would wish to the fairies, give her spare change to her mom, and say, like, I'm going to help you adopt a kid, right? Like, like very kid <laughs> logic. Yeah. So her mom got on donor sibling registry, and she started meeting her siblings, starting when she was 9 or 10 years old. They've been going to Bass Lake every summer, and they forged this amazing. Relationship. The kids now are all between 18 and 25. So they're kind of all in college or like about graduated from college now. And they live all over the country, but they all keep in touch on Instagram. They have an Instagram group chat that Tim is part of. And in fact, when I first asked him if I could talk to any of his donor kids, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll ask my Instagram group chat. And like 11 of them replied like almost <laughs> immediately. But they also have a Snapchat group chat that's only for the kids.
0: Talk a little bit about how the relationship is with Tim and the kids now. The so kids
3: obviously have different perspectives. McKay like, hey, the thinks of him as a dad. Another kid thinks of an uncle. Some of, like more like a friend. So he took one of his kids named Joe to Vegas for his 21st birthday. It's all like, kind of different relationships. Tim, he's pretty close to some of them. He's a little bit less close to the others. As he described it, he kind of wanted to be as there, as available as his donor kids wanted him to
0: be. We've talked about another story before where people use these services to track down family members. And it's just another sweet story of how a new family unit can be formed. And as you said, they've done this tradition now where they go to Bass Lake every year as a whole family. They rent a huge van and, you know, they get out there and have fun and all the kids love each other and they have all these sibling rivalries and they're that new family unit.
3: One of the things that was um, kind of really struck me in talking to the siblings and their different relationships is that, you know, uh, Tim lives in San Francisco, but his sperm went all over the country. And um, some of the, you know, some of the women who picked him were single mothers, some were lesbian couples, but there were also sometimes, uh, you know, just a, a heterosexual couple where the a father was infertile. Um and it's been really interesting to hear some of the kids talk about like how to navigate that, right? Like how do they have, um, how they are able to be excited to have this like whole new family of half siblings, but also like have to keep the relationship with their father. Um, in one case, one of the girls I talked to, her name was Sam. She's, uh, I think she's 20 now and in college. Um, she first met Sam, uh, sorry, she first met Tim a few years ago. And she told me she like, grew up in the Midwest, was like super conservative, had like never known anyone who was out and gay. Um, and sort of being around him, being around the other kids who, like, grew up with lesbian lesbian mothers, it, like, made her, she actually came out as gay um, her senior year of high school. And it was something she talked to Tim about because she she didn't have any other experience with this otherwise.
0: Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for today.